The Clifton Duncan Podcast is supported by the beautiful people who watch, listen, share, and subscribe to the show. If you enjoy my work, please consider donating via PayPal, Cash App, or Venmo. Perhaps become a paid subscriber to my newsletter, The State of the Arts, and or patronize my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. All the links are in the show notes. Thank you so much, and enjoy the show. Ladies, gentlemen, and as always, everyone in between, my name is Clifton Duncan. This is my podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another fascinating conversation, living at the nexus of art, entertainment, culture, and society. Beautiful people, this episode is in fact a special occasion, and not just because I have a fantastic guest lined up for you, which I do, of course, um, but it is, my friends, the 50th episode. Whoever thought that we would get this far? Thank you so much for all of your support along the way. Let's focus our vision on a future with 50 more sterling episodes um, at bare minimum. Um, now, whether your preferred mode of transmission is YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, wherever it is you go to scratch your CDP itch, please uh, leave a comment, a like, a positive review, or even all the above if you're nasty. Uh, it helps the show grow and keeps me motivated to keep bringing you the good stuff. Um, I would love for my YouTube viewers to not only subscribe to the channel, but to share it as much as humanly possible. If you love it, share it with your friends, and if you hate it, why then share it with your enemies? Um, lastly, I have just launched a new newsletter with the cheeky title, The State of the Arts, dealing with the sorts of issues we cover here on this show, with hopefully a bit of literary flair. Perhaps my guest today can give me a few pointers on that. Um, it's free to subscribe, but if you'd like to pay me five bucks a month, you not only enable this starving artist to keep his lights on and rent paid, but you also get to hear his essays brought to life in his smooth, velvety, baritone voice <laughs> uh, you can you can subscribe to the state of the arts at cliftonduncan.substack.com again that's cliftonduncan.substack.com uh, now all that said i don't know about you but uh, i'm not sure if i've ever been more keenly aware of not only the gulf between the powerful and the powerless in our society but also the severe disconnect between our cultural elites and the institutions which produce them uh, and the public at large uh, my guest today has for years had some of the most keen insight into this disconnect and is a very powerful communicator uh, of its impact on wider society. That, moreover, I sense I have a sense that his humble beginnings, combined with his elevation through the Ivy League and into the belly of some of America's most elite institutional beasts, gives him a unique perspective on what both sides of our ever-fracturing society might be experiencing. Um, he is an American novelist, a literary critic, an essayist who received his education from Princeton University in the United States and Oxford University in the United Kingdom. <laughs> he is the author of several novels, including Up in the Air, which was adapted into a wonderful film uh, starring George Clooney. Um, he's a contributing editor for Time magazine and has written for such esteemed publications as uh, New York Magazine, The New Yorker, GQ, Vogue, and Esquire, among others, and is the co-host 
of the America This Week podcast alongside fellow troublemaker Matt Taibbi. Um, friends, welcome the great Walter Kern to the 50th episode of the Clifton Duncan podcast. Mr. Kern, it's such a delight to be with you today. I'm in a puddle of narcissistic amusement right now. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the buildup, man, and thank you for doing it in your best voice. Uh, I, I, I grew up a radio guy, and um, in Minnesota, we had a uh, station, WCCO, with uh, hosts who did voices and had characters. And uh, the theater of the air is my favorite place to be, even more mm. than you know the, the theater of the stage. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm thrilled to be here with a pro. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'd call myself a pro. I feel like a pro, <laughs> pro, a pro would probably make far more money than I'm than I'm making. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, it's well, it's funny. You know, we were talking, be, be, you know, quote unquote, off air, so to speak. Right, right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really up in my feelings today, just because you know I'm looking at everything going on in society, and you know, for myself, I, I came you know, single mom, military brat, not, not really from, you know, didn't really have that much. But yet then I found myself, you know, via my journey through entertainment, um, just among, eventually among, you know, these sort of cultural elites. So I feel like I kind of speak their language, but I but, but I still have those sort of, um, I don't know what you call them, uh, the sort of uh, the humble roots. And I loyalties. Feel Loyalties, yeah, or, or sensibilities, I suppose. And, sensibilities, yeah. And I guess, you know, I've been so utterly offended, especially in the past few years, uh, just by the utter, the utter disdain that, that uh, people in these institutions um, feel for people that I knew growing up. And so I, so I guess, you know, I guess I'll start with just for people who don't know you, like your, your background and upbringing, because given, yeah. given the way that I have built you up, um, I wonder if people might be a bit surprised by, uh, by where you've come from. Well, so I'm a kid who grew up in the smallest towns of Minnesota. None were over 500 people. Uh, for anybody who knows Minnesota, Marine on St. Croix and Taylor's Falls, Minnesota. And uh, they were farm towns. And uh, I'm born in 1962. So I was there in the late 60s, 70s, and then went off to college in the 80s. When I went off to college, I went to Princeton University. Um, I was uh, hoping to follow in the footsteps of F. Scott Fitzgerald, the famous Minnesotan novelist. That's how I think of him, not the author of The Great Gatsby, but the kid from St. Paul. And uh, while there, and I've written a book about this called Lost in the Meritocracy, I found myself desperately alienated from what I properly understood to be the establishment of America, the real historical legacy establishment, people whose grandfathers had done things like built the Brooklyn Bridge and founded some of the big financial fortunes of the country. Um, I was a literary kid. I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to write plays. So I concentrated on that. I wasn't headed out into the Wall Street world. I didn't see my trajectory as having to do with making money in business or uh, in finance. So I was free to look at this Princeton uh, wonderland a little bit askance, objectively, um, and also from the point of view of this small town upbringing I'd had. And what I learned was that they, though they thought they knew everything, they knew knew more than I did. In fact, they knew less in some ways, because strangely, they'd had a very, um, uh, a very boundaried upbringing. 
between the schools they went to that only accepted people like them uh, and the institutions in which their families had made their fortunes, which were filled with people like them. They were a very blinkered group. Um, not only did they not know much about American life and, and, and other classes and uh, so on, but they had a vision of themselves as somehow deserving of power, hmm. uh, as somehow destined to rule, uh, which was a funny thing for me to see because I'd never met people like that. You know, uh, kids I grew up with, their dad owned a store or, you know, a gas station or, you know, pumped, pumped uh, septic tanks or something like my best friend. Um, and uh, that was what success meant uh, in my youth. But I'd never imagined people who thought that they were bound for, you know, ambassadorships and uh, CEO positions and felt that somehow it was their birthright. And uh, as I got to know them better, it scared me to think of, of how much power they would someday wield. Um, and that they would wield it with no more experience of the world than they had already. In fact, college was probably mm. the moment when they were going to mix most broadly with others um, before retreating into the corridors of power. So, so, so that's, that's where I come from. I mean, after Princeton, I won a fellowship to Oxford um, in the early 80s. And uh, England at that time was, at least on the left, extremely anti-American. Um, oh, really? Thatcher, Thatcher was prime minister, but Reagan was president over here. And, and the, the thoughtful types, the people who considered themselves, you know, the, the, the upper crust, uh, saw Americans as rude, crude, socially unacceptable, right wing um, destroyers of all that was sophisticated. And I was, of course, lumped in that group. And, you know, I'll be honest, for a white kid from Minnesota to feel um, discriminated against is odd. Uh, I, 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 I grew up in a world in which everybody looked like me, talked like me. Um, and until I got to Princeton, really didn't know much of our, you know, diverse world. But in England, I was suddenly uh, the ugly American. And uh, it caused me to fall back to on my original loyalties to some extent. Um, now looking back, maybe maybe uh, maybe we were out to colonize and destroy and set at war the entire world. Maybe there were reasons to be suspicious of the American Empire that I wasn't yet aware of at my young age. But at that time, I just felt unfairly, uh, you know, un unfairly classified. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I, I often apologize whenever I have uh, British guests on. I say, you know, I, I feel bad because it seems that whatever we Americans flush down the cultural toilet, it seems to wash up on the other side of the pond oh, <laughs> in the United Kingdom. And so you mentioned, you know, the term like, you know, right wing destroyers. But now it seems nowadays it just seems like uh, we're dealing with more left wing destroyers, uh, you know, and maybe at the time that was maybe at that time it was correct that they were more right-wing, but now it seems that uh, a lot of the cultural stuff people are rejecting is um, is being born of, of left-wingers. Well, it's interesting because when I got to Princeton, I, I 
thought, because I was an English major, what I was going to be doing is reading the classics and having these sort of deep discussions that would spill over into the dorm room about, you know, the meaning of the whale and Moby Dick and, you know, uh, <laughs> great Gatsby and performance in everyday life. And are we who we say we are or are we who we pretend to be and things like that. Instead, the literary education at Princeton in the 1980s was this incipient left-wing um, uh, critical theory-based uh, critique of society itself. The books weren't really important except as, um, except as examples of our terrible patriarchal, um, racist, colonialist, uh, and uh, otherist society. And, and and they were, and what you did was you looked in them for clues as to our sins and uh, the ways of power and so on. You didn't really read them for themselves or understand the characters or that kind of thing. And so, in, in I guess what I'm saying is that in seed form, the left of today was already present in the arts. Um, who would have ever thought it would break out across all society as it right. has? And 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 there were certain things I noticed about the the professors who uh, who 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 pushed this line at the time that I notice now about a lot of people because the the contagion has spread so to speak. They were people who, though they professed you know tolerance and, and, and a sort of cosmopolitan view of things, were incredibly um, tight-assed. Uh, uh, persnickety, um, narrow-minded folks who really stuck to the academy as their, as their fortress and, and didn't get out in the world much. So most of the groups that, who, in whose name and, and whose oppression they were, uh, they were acting were ones that were completely foreign to them. They'd never met anybody, you know, they, 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 uh, number, so they were complete, completely condescending. Number two, they had an ability to um, mistake their theories for real life. That was just shocking. They 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 would they would prove things on paper that were silly if you went outside, but they preferred the proof to the evidence, as it were. Um, and so, to see that to see that approach become so widespread in society. Uh, to see that arrogance, that preference for theory over actuality, uh, that, into that intolerance, in fact, uh, spread so widely and become kind of conventional wisdom has, has not been easy. <laughs> If you're a fan of the Clifton Duncan podcast, you'll love my new newsletter called The State of the Arts. Sign up for free for weekly articles as well as the latest information on my upcoming projects, shows, events, and appearances. And for just $5 a month, you can hear me bring my articles to life in my velvety baritone voice. Join the growing heterodox arts movement and subscribe to The State of the Arts today at cliftonduncan.substack.com. Well, it seems like you're one of the few people who, you know, because I guess the, the sort of typical line has had been that, yeah, okay, these ideas and everything, they they incubate in the academy. But once people hit the real world, once they graduate, then they'll be, you know, then they'll be knocked on their ass and come to their senses. But, um, but you were already talking about, well, 
these people will be in charge one day. You know, it, 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 it seems lost. It seemed like it got lost somewhere that people uh, would understood that these people will graduate and then they'll get jobs. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, they'll, they'll be in HR departments. They'll, I mean, my, my thing is that, uh, you know, the way I tried to describe it to people is that you're dealing with people, uh, a very, actually a, a very quite small proportion of people who wind up, you know, in these institutions um, or in the, you know, with the levers of power. And they are of this mindset and because they're of this mindset, um, you know, they, and because they're in the positions that they're in, they get to exert just this disproportionate um, influence over the culture and over society. And, um, right. you know, and, and the increasingly, especially since 2016, you know, just the, 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 the disconnect between um, what these people think and believe and their arrogance and their hubris and just the, you know, the, the experiences of everyday people. It's just, it's so, it's so astonishing to me. Well, you see, I'd grown up in Minnesota where the democratic party is called the DFL, the democratic farmer labor party. Right. I'd grown up thinking that left wing politics was about unions and um, empowering the, you know, empowering the working class and educating people who didn't have an education and, and, and lifting the poor, basically. Um, but that changed somewhere along the way, and it became a sort of ideological identity-based witch hunt for wrong thinking and, and, and wrong uh, presenting people. Um, mm. and, and, it, and it ultimately became a, a very sort of upper-class phenomenon. Uh, you know, uh, Let's remember the re the place I was first exposed to these ideas was Princeton University, um, and, and and so this revolution from above in which the people who in a way mix least uh, uh, mix least with the common man as it were uh, are 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 supposedly advocates for the downtrodden, and in that name they hate on the downtrodden because they. Uh, don't have the proper attitudes. They're not sufficiently enlightened. They have the wrong sexual um, way of being, the wrong um, the wrong way of talking. Uh, their language needs to be policed. They're crude. They they don't um, somehow carry forward the great project of civilization in the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, all this was astonishing to me because I I, I thought and I've continued to be this way, that the job of liberal or left-wing politics was to empower the powerless, not give the powerful yet another tool for humiliating, confining, and shaming those without, which is what it's become. Well, you know, it's... it's um... One of the most striking things for me, especially in the past few years, has been once it's once it seemed once there was a perceived sense of of power, um, especially among the the arts community with, with regard to the response to the, the pandemic, they, yeah. they they wielded that perceived power with just a, a wickedness and a cruelty with which, um, you know, I, I I don't know if I could ever really unsee that. I mean, you 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 had the great metaphor of a um, well, I won't steal it from you, but uh, you, you used a, a a mechanical metaphor. I would love if you if you could repeat it, if you could you know resum it up that brilliance because I thought it was just um, astonishing. 
Well, it won't sound so brilliant now that I try to reconstruct it, but it was something. <laughs> Sorry, it I put you some, on the spot like that. It went something like this. You know, uh, the COVID drama, which in a way is a an encapsulated uh, stage play that has all the themes we're talking about. Um, the COVID drama did something to people, to a lot of people. Um, maybe not to you or I, <laughs> but to a lot of people. And they are now like a bent part in a car. The, the car will never function the same. It will always make a noise. It will never run as smoothly as it did once because in this COVID um, operation, and I, I, I'm going to call it that, though that has shades of paranoia, I, I, I'm fine with it. They did things like cause the academic progress of the very poorest kids. I went to public school, okay? The public schools were absolutely decimated. Um, they, they had kids who really, though they had their computers turned on maybe nominally for part of COVID, got no education. When they were supposed to be learning to read, when they were supposed to be learning math, when they were supposed to be putting their heads together for the first time as six, seven-year-olds, my Lord, could you do anything more damaging to youth than suddenly yank them out of their social lives, yank them out of their educational lives, yank them out of their very heads at the point where they're learning to cope intellectually and, 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 and learning to build the tools that will allow them to do things like, you know, make change, read a book, talk to others? I mean, I had a nephew who wasn't able to get the speech therapy he needed until shockingly recently, because in the state he lived, speech therapists were required to be masked. And, and I mean, this is like, this only went away months ago. We're not talking, you know, years ago. Um, I, the brutality of that. Now, that the artists of America, who I always, sort of consoled myself were somehow uh, naturally disobedient, naturally questioning, naturally rebellious, <laughs> naturally skeptical, would not only go along with these measures, these measures which decimated the arts, decimated the theater as, you know, I need to tell you that, but, um, uh, and, and not only that, appointed themselves enforcers for the whole thing. You know, I, I, I have friends in music who um, went on Twitter and on other places um, saying, you know, I'm a friend to the vaccinated. Uh, don't bother showing up for my shows if, if you aren't. Um, they, were, they were actually uh, the hall monitors. I, I, I go back to high school. That's where I think all the basic groups and sort of personality types are formed or junior high, and, and, and suddenly these guys were like deputies of the vice principal's office. What? Uh, um, you were not who you said you were. Maybe one of the dangers of power is that when people who don't have that much suddenly get a little, they, we learn who they really are, and maybe they didn't know themselves. I'll cut them a break, but uh, I, I suddenly saw little Hitlers everywhere who I thought were, you know, shoot, I thought they came in the tradition of, you know, 
Jimi Hendrix, Eugene O'Neill, and uh, you know Miles Davis. I thought they were freaks. What the freaks are policing the other freaks? What? I, I, it was it was one of the most demoralizing things I ever saw in my life. What's more, they are actually taking the side of censors who, you know, to to see actual writers calling for censorship, calling for the policing of disinformation, calling for the silencing of dissident voices, pushing for the interests of the biggest corporate uh, uh, behemoths in the world, like Pfizer Corporation, on the part of, you know, the biggest federal government in the world was just not just alarming, but demoralizing. Uh, I lost a lot of friends, not because I went on some jihad against them, but because they went on one against me. I mean, I, I would say that of the broken friendships, most of the, it, it, over this stuff, most of them were initiated by others. I didn't have to do it. You know, um, I, I had a, a, a friend during COVID, I was never a big fan of Dr. Fauci. To me, he reminded uh, he reminded me of the doctor character in the old uh, medieval uh, Commedia dell'arte, who's a big quack and is always, you know, grabbing women's butts. And he 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 he's a lustful, uh, fraudulent um, uh, poisoner of people in that. And I, I immediately thought, saw F Fauci sort of in that stereotypical role. And I sort of let it be known. And one of my oldest friends, you know, Mr. 1960s Bob Dylan listening, Frank Zappa loving, you know, uh, art teacher in New York City, called my wife. He didn't have the guts to call me. Wow. He said, is Walter okay, man? You know, uh, uh, maybe you should have a talk with him. Uh, and, and, and I came upstairs in my house and, and, and my wife's talking to this guy. I said, who's that? And she says, it's X. I said, what is he calling for? He's calling to find out if you're okay. Thinking maybe I should have a talk with you. I went down and got on the phone with him. I said, hey man, uh, what's the problem here? Well, this stuff about Fauci. And I was like, what? <laughs> First of all, who cares? Am I not entitled to my opinion on just about anything? But secondly, are, are, are you calling from the police? Uh, boy, I, I, I thought we were friends who, you know, got wasted together back in college. What happened, man? Well, what happened to you is his question, you know? And that repeated over and over in some fashion uh, was my experience of COVID. Something that, I mean, now in retrospect, I can just speak freely. Maybe I shouldn't, but I will. I never bought the damn thing in the first place. I mean, I just never bought into it in the first place. When I looked up, the world was crazy and I hadn't bought the ticket somehow. I, they hadn't put the chip in my brain. I don't know what happened. Somehow I missed the initial programming and uh, it, it was just like watching a freaking absurdist drama the whole time for me. Except that they, except they had designs on me. They wanted to, they wanted me to do stuff. They wanted me to go along. They wanted me to stick stuff in my body, etc. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I always uh, I envy people that uh, sort of 
never really uh, bought into it because I mean I certainly did for the the first few months of um, of 2020, but you know, but over time it's interesting because I you know, and I, I said this um, recently to some to some folks is that my my objections um, partly they were you know economically driven in terms of like an, an, an economics perspective of you know cost right. benefit and and how everything's interconnected and how you can't just shut down one sector of society and not have any sort of ramifications of, of, for that. But for me, I, I was coming at it from more of a bleeding heart liberal artist, you know, from the human perspective. I was saying like, you know, you mentioned before, you, you know, putting masks on children and all these kinds of things. Like, how can you not see the human costs of keeping them out of school? I mean, there were there were stories in the New York Times of, you know, of, of there was one that stood out to me in particular of a um, of a child that that hanged himself. Uh, days before his 14th birthday, because he was so isolated, he was so depressed. And these people who are so compassionate and they're so, they, they care about the vulnerable and whatnot, were saying, well, what did the parents do? What's wrong with what the, you know, what, what was happening in that house? Um, they were they were blaming the, the victims in, in, in a sense. And I thought, you know, if anyone, if anyone should understand the human cause, it should be artists, you know, who live in, you know, we're not up here in where, where the academics live. We're in our, our hearts, we're in our guts, we're in our, you know, our fourth chakra as well. We should we should have a, a sensual understanding of of the experience and, and of the pain of these people. But it, it was completely that sense was completely abandoned um, again in, in service of this this great oppressive machine. And I just, I can't get over that. Well, you know, so, so Clifton, I, I, I really identify with what you just said. Um, I'll, I'll break down my COVID experience a little bit more. Um, when the whole thing, <clears throat> when the whole tidal wave hit, I was in Las Vegas where I spent some time in the winter and my wife is writing a book uh, on the city. And I went to a Bruno Mars concert about the day before they shut down the whole city. I, I, I'm friends with a guy who's friends with some world-class gambler. And we ended up with free tickets to all kinds of stuff. And, um, and I'm in like the third row of a Bruno Mars concert. I've been looking like, you know, I'm 89 years old uh, by contrast. And, 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 and uh, the concert is so uh, rowdy. And, and COVID had started and there were rumors that the city was about to shut down, but I was going to get my free third row seat. And I could see as people were screaming at Mars as he danced on stage, I could see spray droplets from people's mouths going up into the footlights. And I thought, okay, if I don't get COVID tomorrow, it's not real because <laughs> because I am absolute, I am now in a spit shower of thousands of people from all over the world who have congregated in this poorly ventilated space, and I'm going to inhale it all. So I'm probably going to die. And then I was okay. So that was the first moment where I went, wait, is this exactly what they're saying it is? Because uh, I don't know that I have any special immunity to anything. But then as time went on, I went, I went back to my little town in Montana where I live, 7,000 people. And in a town of 7,000, you have a microcosm. And it's a town that has a lot of tourism. So people come in and out. It's not hermetically sealed, you know. And, and, and I was like, if there is a pandemic, I'm going to see it here. You know, 
we have a hospital, I've got friends, the whole place is only like, a, you know, draw a circle of a mile, that's most people. And when the evidence of it was all on the news, but not in my town, mm-hmm. I started to go, what the heck's going on here? You know, um, uh, it never really showed up. I, I'd, I'd read about New York City, and my God, it seemed like, you know, a Holocaust was going on. You know, we're going to close down huge areas, fill them with beds. We're going to put up tents in Central Park. We're going to, you know, somehow deal with this. And I heard a lot about people dying in nursing homes and so on. And 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 everybody I talked to on the phone from New York was shit scared. But I was looking around and going, I don't know that just the fresh air of Montana is preventing this. Why isn't it happening? And then it kept not happening. Uh, and 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 then, weirdly enough, my father, who was an older guy, 82 years old, he had ALS, and he, he, he was dying during the spring of COVID. And I sat at his bedside. And in order to get him uh, nursing care, uh, and in order for him to uh, be at home and so on, I had to break about 100 COVID rules. I mean, I was a criminal for bringing a guy up from Miami to uh, a big guy who could lift my dad, who was himself a big guy. Um, I was a criminal for bringing my dad home from Tucson, Arizona to his cabin in Montana because he'd cross the state line without quarantining uh, and all of this. And suddenly I found myself unable to comply with about 50 different rules and it not mattering. While a life event that did matter was before my eyes. And I knew people who at the same Oh, it appears that we have temporarily lost Mr. Kern. Hopefully he'll return. We'll have to see what happens. We might have to do an edit here. Yeah. Well, so here I am, you know, dealing with the uh, demise of my dad sitting at his bedside, having broken all these COVID uh, rules to get him care and to even have him in the same room with me. And I'm talking to people who don't have that privilege. I mean, it's a strange thing to call it to pr- a privilege to be with your father when he's dying, but it was. Mm. And uh, I'm talking to people who, whose parents, grandparents, spouses have been locked away in hospitals and nursing homes and perished without company. Talk about having the fourth chakra, you know, vibrate. Uh, talk about your empathy, um, your your empathy faculties being activated. Uh, I I I I felt like a, a terrible crime was going on. To be honest, um, and 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 you know, I I think that in in retrospect, as we look back on that whole theater. Um, of the absurd that was the COVID pandemic, uh, I feel largely vindicated in a in a way I didn't wish to be vindicated. Do I think do that, do I think that the destruction of kids' educations, the um, heartbreak of people letting go of loved ones who they didn't get to talk to, loved ones who often died of loneliness, I, I, I think as is the case with my wife's grandmother. Mm. Um, was that worth it? Is anything worth it? Uh, worth that? Uh, no. And, but once we're, again, 
we return to the responsibility of the artist to in somehow to somehow be the nervous system or the heart or the mind of, of their society. I, I feel we, if I'm going to join myself with that group, we fail. We failed miserably. Um, whatever individuals may have broken off from all that as a group, we betrayed, we betrayed our calling. Do you drink coffee or tea? Of course you do. And that's why I want to tell you about my sponsor, Twin Engine Coffee. Twin Engine Coffee grows and roasts specialty grade coffees right on the farms in Central America. If you don't drink coffee, try Katura Tea, my personal favorite, made from the dried fruit of the coffee plant. Pro tip, add some ginger, lemon, honey, and a dash of cayenne powder, and you'll have the perfect, sexy, soothing concoction. Support small business and this podcast and order from TwinEngineCoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Again, that is twinenginecoffee.com slash Clifton Duncan. Yeah, I mean, that 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 hits me right, uh, maybe the third, second or third chakra, I don't know, right, wherever the, the sternum sits. But, uh, right, right, you know, right. But especially for actors, you know, I mean, we're supposed to be these, um, you know, we're supposed to be these conduits for the human condition. And, yes. um, but so many people, I think, only had an understanding on a very like superficial level. It's like, oh, people might get sick and they might and they might perish because of it. But they didn't think of any of the second order, you know, second order, you know, or, or other levels of suffering that they were imposing on other people. And um, I mean, I think a big part of it was was partisan, really. I mean, I think that they have this idea in their minds that, um, you know, I mean, basically after Trump got elected, I'm sure you noticed this as well. <laughs> <laughs> the people, um, their their minds just got fried completely. And um, then, you know, 2020 was that big election year. And it, it seemed like a lot of the response to uh, what was happening was was baked into this idea of, well, we have to get rid of, of Trump and or this polarizing president and, and beat the Republicans. But it's, it's just they to, to see people completely abandon their humanity uh, for the sake of of politics, but but while convincing themselves that they're saving lives, I mean, it's just, I don't know how how I, I'll never unsee that. I said it before, but I can't. It was it was a great insight into into um, calamities of the past that we may not have understood properly uh, mm. until now. Um, I don't think we understood quite how mass uh, movements form and are manipulated and created. But now we know. Um, I don't think we quite understood how well government and industry can come together. Uh, we, we understand it in war. We, we understand how governments and arms companies and, and you know, weapons makers and so on collude in wartime for the profit of, uh, 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 of the private uh, citizen at the expense of the people who go and fight. But to see it happen in peacetime, in which it, this grand collusion between uh, between the commerce side and medicine is largely commerce now. Let's get real. I yeah, mean, for real. Uh, uh, I, I, I remember, you know, how it's changed. I'm old enough to have seen the change. And uh, I remember my dad turning to me once and once they'd started advertising drugs on TV and he said, this is going to get bad. And, wow. <laughs> and boy, did it, you know, uh, as someone who's written for magazines my whole life, 
I know that there are two um, two industries that keep magazines alive: liquor, absolute vodka being the specific product, and uh, and pharmaceutical drugs. And um, we would never let the liquor industry dictate how we lived our lives, but we let the pharmaceutical drug industry dictate how we lived our lives. And they made money that has not ever been made in history in that short a time and in that amount. And yet all these, uh, you know, all these skeptical artist types who were supposed to kind of, in a weird way, keep an eye on the greed, the greedy types just let it happen and jumped on board. And in fact, to be honest, popular artists I saw just flat corrupted by the whole thing. I mean, I know, I know people who are just paid. They were just paid spokespeople. They, they, didn't, they didn't wear a badge that said, I got paid by Pfizer to back this vaccine, but I know that they got paid. And I, and, 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 and you know, I remember when I was a kid and you'd hear radio shows in which the host didn't really segue into the commercials. They pretended like the commercials were part of the show. They'd say something like, you know, when I got up this morning off my comfortable Sealy mattress, um, uh, I realized I was better rested than I've ever been, you know? And you go, oh, this is a commercial. That's kind of how it was with these medical products. Uh, you know, wait a second, my friends are doing commercials. These people I know are doing commercials. Well, you know, it, it's, um... Reminds me of uh, something that you wrote, actually, which I, I made sure to to copy here. I, I hope you don't mind me quoting yourself to you. No, I um, love it. <laughs> but the uh, but uh, people should read this essay. I'll, I'll link it in the um, in the uh, description box as well. But it's, it's called "The Power and the Silence," and um, you wrote uh, "Power, true power." Well, excuse me. Well, quote: "Power, true power, is a wonder to behold." It is also, for the powerless, unnerving, chiefly because it calls for self-suppression in quantities equal to power's immense self-confidence. Survival is not our strongest drive, whatever the evolutionists may say. Our strongest drive is to please the people over us, especially those who have no one over them. And I, I came away from reading that, just I almost fell out of my chair because it, to me it, it encapsulates so much about um, about how people responded. And I, I just, I don't, I, I, I just don't understand why. And, and it's ironic because people who, you know, people like Jay Bhattacharya and Martin Kaldor, for, for those who don't know, they're the, the co-authors of, uh, along with Sinatra Gupta of the Great Barrington Declaration, which, you know, uh, which uh, advocated for focused protection. And um, they were telling me, you, you know, you know who's going to steer us out of this ditch is the artists. And I just, I'm like, dude, they had these non-artists had way more faith in artists than than they deserved and it's 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 so it's so weird to me to uh, to especially in new york right to see these and and broadway especially you're talking about one of the crown jewels of of the city and of the american theater who yeah. who allowed themselves to be rendered less essential than like liquor stores and weed dispensaries i'm like what on earth is going on right now Listen, anybody who wanted to go to a play should have been able to go to a play. Uh, uh, that's how I see it. I mean, it's that simple. You know, that that piece that you read from uh, is based on an anecdote that I, I think bears repeating. Um, the president of a bank, uh, he's, he's passed away now. He was the president of US Bank. 
told me a story uh, about the morning of 9-11. He was at a golf tournament in Omaha, Nebraska, this bank president. And it's a annual uh, golf tournament thrown by Warren Buffett. And, and Warren Buffett invites the heads of industries and the biggest movie stars and so on to play golf with him. But it was 2001 and the cell phone was coming in and Warren Buffett had a rule, no cell phones on the golf course. So people put their cell phones in their pockets. They didn't want to defy Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett had the ability to buy and sell their companies. They might want his money someday. Um, they might want him to buy their stock, et cetera. So they were all there to please power. Well, you know, at about nine o'clock in the morning or whatever, as they're golfing, their cell phones start ringing in their pockets. And it's their, it's their secretaries and partners calling them saying, you know, the World Trade Center just collapsed. But they are so afraid of Warren Buffett seeing them use a cell phone that they hide the fact that they know and go on playing golf as though nothing is happening. Waiting for him to find out independently rather than get him mad at them. And, and, and that is the metaphor that I, or that is the incident that I made into a metaphor in that piece. I think during COVID, there were a lot of people who knew better. There were a lot of people in hospitals. See, I, I have, I have uh, family members who are doctors and uh, my mom was a nurse and I know people. And the truth of the matter was that maybe outside of New York, I, I can't speak to that. The hospitals were empty. Um, nurses were not getting hours because people were afraid to go to the hospital because of the COVID, you know, uh, propaganda. But COVID itself was not filling them up. And so in, at the same time, we're being told that, you know, uh, we have to stay locked down because to pass, the, to pass the virus means that you might take up a bed or to catch the virus even means you might take up a bed that somebody else needs more. Well, the truth was, damn, the hospitals were empty. And um, uh, in many cases, and uh, people, doctors, people who worked in healthcare, people who worked in all kinds of industries, knew that they were going along with something. And just like those people on the golf course who were pretending to please the powerful person, pretending to follow the rules for Mr. Buffett, while at the same time having secret knowledge of something other, something else. Th that describes a lot of the population in America. And, and, and now as, as so much about COVID is revealed to be bullshit, you know, how well did the vaccines work? Not well at all. Um, uh, was it, was, were the cases and the deaths overcounted? Oh yeah. Uh, were um, there other treatments available that might have helped? Oh, yes, uh, et cetera. Now people who I think knew secretly other than what they said um, are, are, are being, being slowly, sort of slowly allowed to say, oh yeah, I, I knew that back at the time. Oh, I, I never was for lockdowns. Oh, I always thought kids should go to school. Oh, I never really believed the vaccine would work that well. Da, 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 da. And, and, and I'm thinking, you, you, you freaking liars. You know what's even worse than the fact that you went with the cops? And the, what's even worse than the fact that you bent over for, 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 for 
Pfizer and Moderna is that now you're pretending you didn't. You don't get to. You don't get to do that. You had your shot. You uh, you, you collaborated, and now you want to rewrite history. Sorry, that I won't allow. Yeah, you know, it's and it's. I think for me as well. On top of that, um, it's the. You know, because I, I can have some forgiveness for people who got swept up in the propaganda blitz and they were terrified for their lives, even though some, if, if we're being a, li a little less charitable, um, some might say it was an IQ test and many people failed uh, miserably. Um, but, you know, but, but that's also kind of unfair to people who, who did, um, you know, lose loved ones uh, as a result. But at the same time, the, the people who irk me the most are those who knew what was going on, but they, but they did what you just said, which is like, they went along to, you know, they went along with it all and they never said anything because they were getting, you know, their bag. They're the ones who are, um, you know, they get to, they get to keep their careers and they, you know, they get to kind of keep their hands clean in, in a way, but unlike these uh, crazy fringe lunatics, um, who happen to be proven correct <laughs> every few months or so with every new revelation. Do you, do you know the Do you know the play, the Ionesco play, Rhinoceros? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, my uh, my friend, a woman named uh, Wina, uh, excuse me, uh, Una um, Trian, she's doing a production, a uh, small production down in Florida right now, and um, she says, you know, it's it's the, it's perfect for this time. It's perfect for this time right now. Um, but, oh yeah. man, I, that that's great. I I was hoping that somebody would get that on stage somewhere as a as the uh, superb allegory of what we've been through that it is you know yeah but actually i don't, I don't know the play that well because i don't know ionesco's work that well but uh but uh, you should talk so, about so, how it so it's very simple i mean uh for those who haven't heard about it it's a, it's a sort of theater of the absurd classic by the french playwright eugenie ionesco and pretty much at the beginning some people are standing out on the street in paris and uh all of a sudden one points and says, oh my God, it's a rhinoceros. A rhinoceros is running down the street. And you see people sort of uh, fleeing and so on. And it becomes clear as the play goes on that this may not, there may not be any rhinoceros. That, that, that what we're seeing is a play about self-delusion or mass delusion um, that, that uh, the ability to sort of socially uh, agree that something is happening mm. is not the same as it actually happening. Um, and, and, and it's a play that conjures with those themes. Um, but I, you know, people who can't see the rhinoceros will end up pointing at it. And I felt like that was COVID, you know, uh, people were like, well, you know, there's no downside in saying there's a rhinoceros and there's a lot of upside uh, uh, I get approval, I, I, I get plaudits, right. I get to keep my job, um, my friends won't look at me funny, I don't have to be alone in my opinions. Yeah, there's a rhinoceros, look at it. I'm, you know, and, and I shake my head in retrospect because when I, I remember when, when the plane masking was at, at its peak, you know, um, <laughs> And, and and some of the, the little sort of vignettes that that generated that are so funny now. Uh, I was on a plane, you know, probably shouldn't have been traveling at all. They were warning about it. You oh, know. you terrible, uh, terrible person. 
it was a very selfish thing to get on a plane. Um, <laughs> but I did <laughs> being a somewhat selfish person at times, you know, because I want to live and so on, uh, <laughs> and see people I know. Uh, and, uh, I had my mask on and, and the lady, they had had the announcement how you were allowed to have a sip of your drink, a quick sip. They said, Ugh. um, a quick sip. Um, it, it, dude, it was like a freaking. It was like basic training in absurdity or something like, uh, you know, the same way you're supposed to hold your rifle in different ways. You could have a quick sip. And, and I saw people around me demonstrating to the stewardess, to the teacher, you know, mm. see how quick I can sip. You know, I was like, man, are people sad? But anyway, um, I, I, I asked I pulled down my mask to ask for a Coke because I knew she couldn't understand me through it. I was in the window seat and there were two people between me and the flight attendant. Oh. And, uh, and she said, put your mask on. And I said, I put it back on and I said, I was only asking, putting it on so you could hear me order a Coke. I want a Coke. And she said, what? <laughs> and then, was I gonna pull it down again and explain? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, it was just one thing after another, one one insult to common sense after another. And at the end, I was starting to go like, uh, I mean, it ended a little faster in Montana. Montana elected a Republican governor, and all of a sudden, all the mask rules changed. And and then one time, the, the other thing that happened during COVID that was sort of eye opening was I drove across a state line into a state that didn't have the same rules. And I was in Idaho and I, I drove from Montana to Idaho onto an Indian reservation. And it was Friday night. And on this Indian reservation, everybody gathers at the grocery store and gets uh, you know, fried chicken and, 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 and picnic and dinner supplies for the big weekend. And everybody was in there and no one not only had a mask on, but they didn't look like they'd ever worn one. And mm. their postures were better. Like I'd just been in Montana where everybody had mask posture. They were like little crabs, you know, and see, they seemed to lose an inch in height when they put a mask on. And here are these people who <laughs> didn't have them on, never worn them, were gathering as they always gathered. Uh, and it was big Friday night. And I just went, what in the hell? This is mind bending. You know, I never wanted to wear the thing, but to see that clearly what it had done to people like to see the contrast uh, was wild. Um, and I don't know that we've ever regained that inch in height. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just really weird. Um, I had the similar experience when I, I fled the city formerly known as New York, as I call it, and I, I came <laughs> to Atlanta. And, you know, I mean, in, in New York, the gyms were closed for like six months, but down in Atlanta, you could go work out mask optional at LA Fitness. And, um, and <laughs> so, you know, while people were walking outside in Central Park with, you know, with, you know, two, three, four masks on, who, you know, who knows? Meanwhile, in Piedmont Park in Atlanta, I mean, people were, they were having a cookout, you know, the kids were running around playing, no one had any masks on, they're having picnics, people are playing, you know, cards, I'm, I'm sharing uh, J's with my, uh, with my brother's musician friends. And 
you know, and nobody really cared. And and the thing is, people warned me before going down to Georgia because they 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 knew that Brian Kemp, uh, the Republican governor, had uh, you know pretty much eased restrictions um, in right. late April of 2020. And uh, I think you know I think maybe the, the Atlantic was one publication that was like, "There's an experiment in death going on in Georgia." And so <laughs> I'm like, so so I made sure to look before I went down to Atlanta. Um, you know, I, I was I was searching. I was like, you know, surely there are like mass deaths going on because. Um, you know, they don't have any restrictions down there. And I couldn't find any news because you knew, you, I mean, you know, if that had been happening, it would have been plastered over, you know, every single um, uh, uh, news um, outlet um, in America. And, you know, then I got down there and things were pretty much as close to normal as 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 they could be. I mean, you know, we were going down to right. bars and, and, and clubs and, and they were open and packed. And, um, that that's what really began to turn me, you know, because then I would, you know, I went back to New York in like the fall of 2020 and, you know, former friends were like, I don't, can we like, I don't know, can we hug now? And I'm like, oh my God, people <laughs> just give me like, give me a hug. And I think again, for me, it goes back to the whole bleeding heart artist thing. And this, this idea of, of sensuality and, and being alive, what, you know, they, 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 they to see the speed and, um, and conviction with which people completely gave up everything that kind of gives life meaning, you know, and they were willing to do so for an indefinite period of time, you know, especially- Dude, remember those there. articles about, are you ready to have sex again? <laughs> I, 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 you know, uh, I'm, I'm contemplating maybe having sex again in a few months, but I'm getting ready. Then I remember when the masks <laughs> and, and the thing was ending, kind of people writing these things like, I'm not ready to go outside. I need more time. Um, yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, Walter, but uh, I was getting laid throughout the pandemic. <laughs> you know, there, there were definitely some women who were like, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they were putting their lives on the line to take one for the team. <laughs> Finally, it gave sex stakes again. You know, <laughs> you mean I can die from this? Let's do it. Let's do um, it. <laughs> uh, but, 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 you know, uh, the one other, I, I, I just feel like I, a storyteller now. Um, I'm in uh, South Dakota on a road trip in November, 2020. And uh, South Dakota famously was laissez-faire about COVID. They never had a mask mandate, you know, and so on. And I tweet from a breakfast uh, bar that I'm in Rapid City, South Dakota. And someone sends me a, uh, an NPR article or a, a sort of transcript of an NPR story from that morning. Uh, saying that the local hospital is overrun, that COVID is so terrible in Rapid City that um, they don't know if they can keep the hospital going. And I'm just sitting there eating breakfast, looking around. Nobody's worried. Uh, I, I don't feel like I'm in a city with a collapsing hospital. So I decide, uh, I said, hey, where's the hospital? I want to drive out there and put on my reporter's cap. And I drive out there and they have just built a new hospital in Rapid City. They're obviously expecting the city to grow. And this hospital could serve a city of four times the size. And so as I see it, as I'm driving up, I'm thinking it's really unlikely that this, this thing is collapsing because it's already got four times the capacity that this city would require. And it's brand new. And there's no cars in the parking lot. Um, so I pull up and I walk in to the emergency room and, or the, the hallway goes past, dude, there's nobody around. Um, 
And so I get back on Twitter and I say something like, well, whatever they say in on NPR, uh, it's just not true. Hmm. Somebody said, are you sure? I was like, yeah, I was, I'm just there. I, I was at, I'm at the hospital. I'm in the parking lot of the collapsing hospital. And it's not happening. <laughs> and I, I just remember somebody coming and saying, you know, I, I don't know that you're understanding correctly what's going on. I was like, well, let's see if evidence of eyes, ears, <laughs> and you know, um, and then I read, I, I went and read the whole article. Of course, I've been fooled by like this before. And in fact, though the, the headline didn't uh, suggest it, the article was actually a, a, an interview with a doctor saying that if COVID got to a certain point, the hospital might face difficulties. Oh, okay. Right. Um, but it was that over and over again. I was always being told I was in terrible jeopardy and then looking around and not feeling like it. Um, and at that point, the human being has a choice. Do they point and go rhinoceros or do they go, there ain't no rhinoceros, you know? Um, and uh, being, being alienated from my very senses, and I guess that's what it comes down to, was not a sacrifice I was willing to make. Well, uh, if only, you know, more artists were like you, uh, you know, it's, it, it kind of brings me back to the beginning of our conversation where, you know, you mentioned that you were in this Ivy League institution and these people were sort of separated in a way from the everyday, the experiences of everyday per uh, people. And what I found so amusing by this was like, when I got to Atlanta, just about every person that I spoke to was like, yeah, man, I don't know, it kind of feel to me like, it ain't really all that they're making it out to be, you know, and they had their various, their various theories for that. But then of course, like you said, you know, you would turn on the news and it was just like blood splattering the walls and, you know, people are, are, uh, are excreting blood in the streets and, and, and there's rivers of blood everywhere. And, you know, but meanwhile, again, we're, we're sitting out in, in Piedmont park and, and, you know, that, that, that disconnect and uh, the fact that the artists brought, uh, bought into it. I, I just wonder, you know, you mentioned popular artists, but I, I have this sort of concept of, and, and the word became a four letter word for some reason during the last administration, but, you know, right. do, you know, can, can we have a, a resurgence of, uh, you know, a, a populist artist instead of the popular artist? Because it seems that that is kind of what has been lacking. And, you know, that that's what's been exposed, at least over the last few years, that there's a lack of populist sentiment among artists who you think would have that kind of thing. I mean, maybe cer certain genres like hip hop, I think sort of more hit, hit that, uh, scratch that itch or hit that niche. But in terms of like, you know, the other institutions from, you know, these vaunted institutions of, you know, the, the opera and, and right, the right. symphony music world and, and the theater and all these things, and even Hollywood to an extent seemed complete to, to be disconnected from all of that. Well, you know, there is a theory that the upper classes or the elites are easier to fool in any sort of uh, social psychology operation because they are people who got to be elites or got to have uh, elite jobs because they're very good at repeating what they're told by other authorities. That in some ways, the people on top of society are more susceptible to deception especially if it comes from authority figures, then people who don't have any real investment in the, in the party line. You know, uh, so uh, 
I, I don't usually talk about this, but I'm a member of a 12 step program. And I'll say only that I go to meetings for that um, uh, addiction or uh, affliction. And during COVID, it was no longer possible to go to live meetings with other people. Um, and uh, so it was all done on Zoom and so on. And that was interesting, but you know, when you're um, dragging down an alley in a little town in Montana and you're an alcoholic, I'm not talking about myself, and you suddenly want to quit and you just got beat up and you got robbed. And for the hundredth time, you realized your life's going nowhere. There was nowhere to go. What, you're going to flip out, take out your Apple laptop and get on Zoom? Um, and can I just say, you, can I just say, even when those meetings were considered non-essential, the liquor stores were considered essential and they were still open. How evil is that? Oh, it, it's as evil as it gets. Yeah. It's as evil as it gets. You know, I, I, I my bottom was not like one of those guys quite, but it wasn't dissimilar in some ways. And on that day, when I walked into a, a meeting place, some people put their arms around me and said, hey, there was a way to get out of this. There was a better way. Um, had there been nowhere to go, I can't imagine what my life would be like now. And that was another aspect, this de-socialization at a time when we needed each other most in a way. Yeah. Uh, and, and the lonely got lonelier, the poor got poorer, the small business closed, the big business thrived, the rich got richer, the, uh, you know, I know, happen to know something about the public schools in Las Vegas. Um, it's one of the worst public school systems in the country. It's rated 50th out of 50, oh, uh, the Nevada state public school system. And Las Vegas is the worst of the worst. These kids maybe get lunch because they go to school and maybe no lunch if they don't. Well, they got no lunch. Um, and as I watched places like The Atlantic and magazines that I've written for, the, these, these centers of elite opinions write these articles. Maybe we should be more like China. Uh, we need more censorship of health disinformation. Um, we, we, we should probably lock down harder and longer. Maybe our mistake was uh, letting people mix at all. Um, I, I just could not believe the ruthless, callous ideas from people who made their living on the internet anyway. It didn't change, you know, Clifton, you are an artist in the strange position of having to go into an actual building with other real people and perform for other real people sitting. But, you know, a lot of artists uh, are just alone in their studio or writers at their laptop or their, you know, pad of paper and so on. And life didn't change for them that much. And so in some ways, they didn't make the proper leap of imagination and realize that just because you can sit at home and you can be all alone and you can, you know, cut off contact with society and still make a living doesn't mean that that kid in third grade can do that. And I remember mm -hmm. during the thing, I went next door to a store that's near my house. I live in downtown Livingston, Montana. And 
I heard a story of a kid who, because he couldn't go to school anymore and he'd had a breakup with his friend, they'd been trying to maintain a virtual friendship or something, hmm. had gone into his room and tried to kill himself. At first it destroyed his room and tried to kill himself. How many of those stories, which are real, was I supposed to hear and just keep towing the line? Right. I, you know, and, and it feels sad now to have to recount these things, but I have every reason to believe this shit's gonna happen again in some form. They, why? Because they keep telling us it will. They keep telling us it's, it's inevitable. Uh, it's inevitable. We'll have another pandemic. We'll have this, we'll have that. Um, I, and, and, and life experience has told me that power doesn't play any tricks that work, that it doesn't play again as soon as it possibly can. And uh, so, so I think it's important that we exhaust ourselves in storytelling and, and, and in regaling each other with the absurdities of this stuff, because at least it might be some proof against it happening again. Yeah, you know, I, I've said um, multiple times now that, uh, you know, the precedent has been set. That's one of the reasons I began to object pretty forcefully in the first place is just what you just said, you know, that they've seen now, whoever they might be, they've seen what they can get away with and what people will, com will, will comply with. I mean, and that to me was one of the most frightening aspects of this. So I guess the, the I'll round everything out. And the last thing that I'll ask you, because we've, we've gone down some uh, pretty treacherous territory is, yeah, yeah. You know, do, do, do you see, do you see us pulling back from the abyss at all? And, uh, you know, and, and I'm, I'm adding this question half-heartedly because I feel like I know the answer, but I'm also a cynic, you know, you know, can and will artists, do you think have any role, you know, uh, in that and, you know, and can they, you know, and, and what, what can they do? You mentioned storytelling. So maybe that's one thing, but I don't know, man. Well, I mean, I, I await, I await the novels that, that, that explore the depths of absurdity that we just went through. I hope there are a few. Um, I've been working on a book that I started before uh, the pandemic that I have to finish, but maybe I'll then delve into that subject uh, myself. Will, uh, will, will, they, will they speak up the next time? Will we speak up the next time? Um, I'm pretty depressed about the prospects of that. <laughs> well, you know, it's not just me. <laughs> well, here, here, here's the thing. Arts in America aren't quite what you think. Um, a lot of them are dependent on universities, uh, big, uh, big charitable organizations, big foundations. Um, and are really only one degree of separation from real power. And so they know where their bread is buttered. Uh, there's nothing less free than a college campus now. Um, you know, and outside, outside of, uh, you know, places like Broadway, where there's actual commercial theater, most theater in America occurs on university and college campuses. Yeah. Uh, um, and so when you are in a way captive, of, the captive of institutions that themselves are related to power, whose endowments are invested in the stocks of these pharmaceutical companies, uh, or when you are getting grants from organizations that you know are, are, are adjacent to big corporations and, and big fortunes and uh, even governments, then 
it's unlikely that there will be a lot of rebelliousness. There will be a lot of biting the hand that feeds one. But the cool people, and, and I'm going to be this way, I found out that the cool people and the uncool people are two very different groups. And the, the cool people are a smaller group, but man, they've shown some guts and they've made some real sacrifices and they've earned their stripes. And uh, I have endless respect for the people who showed up who didn't buy the bullshit, who made sacrifices and were themselves shunned. And they're my new heroes and I will cling to them. And their words mean about 10,000 times to me what the words of the uh, worms mean. And so uh, maybe, maybe society will listen to them a little more keenly than it did before. But do I expect the great majority to react any differently? No. Well, I can't think of a better place to end it than that. Uh, Mr. Kerr and I, I so appreciate, uh, we've been dancing around each other for a long time and playing, uh, playing yeah. DM tag, but I'm glad we were able to connect today. Let's do it again, Clifton. Clifton, I'm going to just, you were so kind as to introduce me with fulsome language, and I, I want to return the favor because I mean it from my heart. You've been one of my heroes through this whole thing. You've been a lot of people's uh, pole star. You've shown a lot of courage, and meeting you was a great privilege. <laughs>